This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a Corolla built just for you. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Bring spring color inside this season with Bare Premium Plus paint starting at just $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. Add a pop of blue to your kitchen with the Bare exclusive color Arrowhead Lake or a splash of Amazon jungle to your living room. Bring a cool breeze to your bathroom with sea glass or accent your bedroom with sunrise-inspired colors like coral cloud and dark crimson. Let your creativity bloom this spring with Bare Premium Plus paint starting at just $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets podcast. My guest is the one and only Harvey Firestein, who's got a brand new memoir, I was better last night. Harvey, why'd you write it? Because of COVID. Had nothing else to do. I'm sitting at home. They shut down the theaters. They shut everything down. I'm sitting at home. I said, well, I owe a couple of quilts. I make quilts, as you might know from reading the book. So I said, I owe a wedding quilt. I owe a baby quilt. So I said, let me just go ahead and make these quilts and catch up which was great i made five quilts in a row it was great everyone loved their quilts who doesn't love a nice quilt because uh you know as opposed to giving somebody a painting you give somebody a painting they got to put it on the wall they got to throw it in the closet when you're not there you know they got to hide it under the bed or something but you give them the quilt you let the dog lay in it if you hate it you know, you put it in the car and uh, and use it in the back of the car for when people get cold if they ate it. And if they love it, they put it on the bed. So everybody loves a quilt. I made no, 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 slow down. How did you get into quilting and how long does it take to make one quilt? Oh, uh, usually I can turn out two quilts a year. But with COVID and nothing else to do... I was just putting out, um, and how did I get into quilting? A, a, a show on PBS. There was a show on PBS many years ago about sewing, and um, I always was sort of interested in sewing. My father sewed because he was in the business of ha- he was in the handkerchief business. He was in the schmalte trade. He he managed a factory for the uh, Gindi family the Mizrahis and the Gindis. And so he knew how to sew. We had a professional sewing machine in our basement. My mother sewed. Um, 
I always thought it was kind of cool. Maybe you could make a piece of clothing or something. I don't know. Anyway, I started watching a sewing program, and all of a sudden, I'm making quilts, which was a lot of fun. Um, and I've been doing it close to 30 years. Okay, so in 30 years, what'd you learn now that you didn't know then in terms of making quilts? Um, you start out, when you start out, you do those uh, uh, traditional quilts, the traditional patterns, you cut triangles and stuff like that. Uh, as you go along, well, also the, the whole art quilt movement has changed. There's a whole art quilt movement now. Uh, people do incredible work um stuff that's never meant to be on a bed it's meant to be on wall and so it's totally freeing this this i don't dye fabric but many people dye fabric people paint on fabric people use three-dimensional stuff and all that i don't do i'm i'm like put it on the bed <laughs> people want something to put on the bed I put it on the bed the wildest i ever do is i'll make matching pillowcases oh Oh, a matching pillowcase. My nephew just called me and said, can I get matching pillowcases for this? And I said, sorry, no. Uh, but, <laughs> you got to get but, in line. Okay, when you do quilt, how long will you quilt at one time and will you multitask, watch TV, or does it require complete concentration? You know what? I used to leave the TV on all the time, and I found I wasn't really listening to it or watching it or anything, so... Why bother? So it doesn't really matter. I do turn the TV on, but it really doesn't matter. You get into a whole rhythm. Now, remember, I'm, I'm, not, I, I'm not quilting by hand. I'm quilting by machine. So you're cutting fabric. You're, you're falling in love with different fabrics. You're putting fabrics together. Okay, so lockdown begins. You're quilting. You find you have a lot of time on your hands. How do you end up writing the memoir? An agent said to me when I said, I'm going to kill myself. I can't make another quilt. <laughs> I've delivered my five quilts. And I, and I must say, three years later, I still have two more quilts cut out on my tables downstairs waiting to be sewed. But I just had had enough. Um, and I said to my agent, I, I, you know, is this going to end? And he said, probably not. Why don't you write your memoir? And I said, I don't write prose. I mean, I write, I've written articles. I write opinion pieces, stuff like that. But a book is like, it's a book. I said, I don't write. And he said, well, why don't you try? And I thought, yeah, why don't you? What the fuck? No one's going to know. Uh, and, and with the computer and all that, you don't have to get the spelling right. And, and... If you get an editor, he'll fix what you what you, what you can't say right. Uh, try it. So I sat down and I wrote, um, not not what the preface is, but you but the, in the very first chapter, I tell a story about being in third grade or second grade, I think, um, where where we were doing Sleeping Beauty, and I tell and I and I told that story. I wrote that story out. Philomena, who played the Wicked Witch in, in Sleeping Beauty, she and I are still friends. I, I, I don't give up friends easy. They got to die on me. That's the, or, or say something nasty. Nasty and death, those are the ways out. So Philomena and I are still friends, you know, 60-something years later. And I take that little story and I send it to Philomena, figuring she'll get a laugh out of it. 
in return, she sent me the photograph that's in the book of, of me in drag, which is what the story was about, getting into drag at seven years old. And um, I said, if she kept that photograph for all these years and that story was important enough for her to remember and me to remember, it might mean something to somebody else. I'm going to keep going. So I kept going. I wrote probably three chapters, four chapters, gave it to my agent. My agent gave it to a literary agent who said, this is good. I said, what do you know? I could write. <laughs> you know, well, you know, Tony Awards, you don't necessarily have to write. Uh, there was there was a uh, uh, there was a best musical uh, uh, best book of a musical w once went to um, a show that had no dialogue at all. It was it was an all dance show. I forget what the name of the show, but it, uh, yeah, you yeah, got it. So uh, she sent it out to like nine publishers, and every one of them made a bid to buy it. So what do you know? So I, I, I picked an editor that I thought would be the right editor. I picked the guy who edited the two big Stephen Sondheim volumes of lyrics. I figured if he's good enough for Steve, he's good enough for Harvey. And, uh, and I also liked other works of his, but that's really how I saw it. And he was, and he's with Knopf. And you can't really do better than Knopf, though they, they paid the least of all the offers. But, you know, it's only money. So that's how I chose him. And he turned out to be a, a, a fabulous editor who basically just kept saying, go, 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 go. He changed very little in the, in the book, made one or two suggestions. I mean, literally, he was just this wonderful, wonderful cheerleader for me um, to just keep me going. And uh, I got this book, which turned out to be a New York Times bestseller, hitting me with a brick. So, you talked about the computer correcting spelling, etc. When you wrote it, how much did the editor change, like, construction and tense, or was it really pretty much the way you wrote it? It's the way I wrote it. It's, it was really sort of surprising. I think because I used a theatrical mindset writing it, I, 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 I used how I would tell a story in a play or a movie. So, um, so that gave me the structure. I allowed each chapter to be its own story. I mean, it's not an anthology by any means, but I allowed it, each one to stand on their own, hopefully. Um, the only structural thing he wanted to change was there's a story at the end of the book uh, about uh, my mother and I that he wanted me that that took place when I was 14 he wanted me to put it at the beginning of the book when I was 14 and I said no you're you're you're, you're wrong it, it belongs where it is it's it's um because it was actually inspired by something that happened between my brother and I in present time and and I knew that that was the way that I wanted to end the book I wanted that memory I wanted that that memory between my brother and I that memory between my mother and I to bring me to that moment 
um, which I thought was a good ending for the book. Now, a book, to write the whole book, is not something you can do in a day. But when you wrote this memoir, which of course reflects your life, which is linear with ups and downs, but when you do your creative work and you do this book, do you start out not knowing where you're going to go, or do you have the bones of it and you're just filling in? Having never written this stuff before, um, I had no idea. None. I knew my life. <laughs> I knew I knew where I was born, and I knew where I was at, at the present moment, and I knew most of what. I remembered a lot of what went on between. So I guess that means you know the structure in some way. But no, I didn't know what stories. There were several. What I would do was I would sit down at the computer every day and write a chapter. I basically wrote a chapter a day. Um, sometimes I went back and edited, but, but I basically wrote one of those chapters every day. And I think, how many chapters are in this stupid thing? There's, uh... A lot. <laughs> too many. There are 59 chapters. So, so, t you know, at least two months. <laughs> but it uh, prob probably took me about four months to write, which still is pretty fast. But when there's nothing else going on in the world, it, you know, was... Uh, the most exciting, it, I started it during the summer, so I did have friends come over to visit because we could sit outside. You know, you couldn't have people in the house because everybody had, you know, we were all lepers and stuff. It was like a scene out of Ben-Hur with her mother and sister hiding behind a stone, the lepers. But, um, so I still had friends come over for play dates with the dogs and stuff like that. But other than that, there was shopping for food and there was cooking and there was the computer and I guess streaming television. Okay. So you finish the book, you're deep in the groove. Now when you're finished and it's done, it's going to be exposed to the public. Were you anxious about that? Did you say, well, maybe it's not that good or you say, no, this is great. Everyone's going to love it. I, I, um, I've written enough stuff. I'm 70 years old. I've been writing, even though I never wanted to be a writer, I've been writing since I was 20. So it's 50 years of putting yourself out there. Um, people are going to think what they're going to think. There's people who are going to love what you write and there's people who are going to hate what you write. And I'm more than used to that. So I, I really try not to judge that. If I want to put something out, if I feel it's true and I'm going to put it out, I, I put it out. I don't read reviews anymore. I used to read reviews and they didn't do me any good. Um, they only hurt. And uh, because you never remember the good ones, you only remember the bad ones. And so... Uh, I changed names. I did write to several people and say, I've written this memoir. I've written about you. Do you want me to use your real name? I, I'm, I'm more than willing to change names. And like people I don't talk to, I change their names. But there were, there were um, a couple of ex-lovers that wanted their names used. Um, in fact, one of them doesn't speak to me anymore. I used his real name, and he stopped speaking to me. But he told me t 
to please use his real name. So I think there's a difference there. I think I would, if I did it over again, I'd just change everybody's name. Uh, because I signed on to tell my truth. They didn't. I signed on to tell my story. They didn't. And of course, my story about them is going to be different than they remember it. So it only makes sense to allow them that fictionalized cover. Okay, so a book is a different artwork from a play or a movie. Yes. In terms of promotion and the sales arc, what was that like doing that for the first time? It was very low pressure because I didn't know anything about it. You know, I publish plays. There are books out of my plays, but I don't have to do anything. They sell them in the lobby or they sell them at theater bookshops. You know, it's nothing you have to do. So I was very curious, especially since COVID was still going on and I had very little else to do. I was very curious as to what it would be like to sell the book and, and, and do all that stuff. There's a lot of stuff to do. A lot of interviews, but most of them were on uh, Zoom, which is why I'm I'm pretty good at Zoom. And well, I think we all have gotten so good at Zoom. And uh, I did do some book signings that were fun. I did some personal appearances that have been fun. Uh, I don't think I read. I read a few. You know, here's what I say about reviews: you don't really have to read them. If they're bad, your friends will call and tell you. They will always <laughs> call and tell you. If they're good, you'll see them in the ad. You know, it's like I go to Amazon and they got all those quotes about the book. So I didn't have to read any of those reviews. Uh, they're, they're all there. And as far and like I said, as far as the bad ones, your friends will call. I don't know how he said that you're so stupid because I don't think you're so stupid. I get it. Okay. Also, there's an audio version. Tell me about the creation of that, and because uh, a lot of people listen to books on tape, as they say, even yeah. though there's no longer any tape. That was a that was a challenge that I knew I was going to have to face. I I do voices, and I do narration for movies. I've I've done the narration for several films, including the Academy Award winning uh, Times of Harvey Milk, and and a few others and I do voices of cartoons and stuff so I'm comfortable doing voiceover work the first book that I did was my play Bella Bella about Bella Abzug um we did a recording of the entire play it's a one person play and so I did that recording so I was I had that that as a background but I already had that memorized. So I had the pages in front of me and I could read from the page, but it was already memorized. I'm very dyslexic, as I say in the book. The idea of sitting down and reading an entire book, especially a 59-chapter book, <laughs> was really frightening to me. So I said, could we get a studio that was low pressure? Which I thought meant... Don't go into the city. Don't go into that evil city of New York because they're, they're used to that. They're used to people being very professional and reading. And I lucked out, and they found this fabulous guy 
who has a beautiful Victorian painted lady about a half hour from me. Uh, and in his guest house slash garage, he's built this beautiful studio where he does all kinds of recordings and all kinds of celebrities have recorded their books there. And it's just you and him and no pressure because he'll put in as many days as it takes. So I think they told me I should figure on three to four days to do the book. It took me six. Because, like I said, I'm so dyslexic. But I just took my time and did it. Um, the only... there was a, It was all manageable. Even the sad stuff was manageable. There was one section that I read aloud, and I had to leave the building. And for the life of me, I can't remember what it was. But I will remember what it was. I read that section... And I had to leave. Um, I, I became very emotional, which I'd already lived through writing the book and editing it. So I, I sort of shocked myself um, to have that kind of reaction. And like I said, at, the, at this moment, I can't even think what it was. And it's not something that, that would knock out a reader. A reader would understand what I was saying in that section. But to me, it just it just ripped me apart when I read it out loud. Okay, in many cases, they have people who are professionals who, that's what they do, read books. Right. For, uh, you know, and then the other thing is, you are a performer, both naturally and in front of the camera and on stage. So, when you approach the book, did you view it as a performance? What attitude did you bring into the reading of it? I thought. The way to do it is to just be as honest as I could be. Just be like you and me talking here. Not for public consumption, not big, but just the two of us talking. I'm telling you this story. And and that's what I wanted it to sound like. I wanted it to sound like I was sitting in your car, because I think most people listen to these things in the car. I, I wanted you to feel I was sitting in your in your passenger seat saying, oh, wait, I got to tell you this story. And that's what I wanted it to sound like. And so that's that's what I went for. Um, now and then I did a little bit of a character voice, you know, if I was doing an imitation of somebody, uh, which I don't do very much, but, but I did. Uh, uh, because I also feel that I'm not exactly positive that I would get every word right if I quoted somebody. So I didn't, I tried to give you an impression of what someone said rather than actually put words in their mouth, unless they were already dead. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Have you got, I know you don't read your reviews, but you've got any specific feedback from friends, family, other, maybe unknown people who reach out to you about the audio version as opposed to the reprinted version? No, my friends, my friends all read the book because it was done way before the audio version. So them I know. But thanks to social media, you get strangers writing to you. And I know and I get a lot of comments from people that read the book, uh, that listened to the book. And even a lot of people who say they read the book while listening to the book 
which I found really interesting. I, that's, I guess, a very fully immersive way to do that. But, uh, but never a negative word. Knock wood. Knock wood. I have not. They have not written to me a negative word. I'm sure this this is a world of negativity. So I'm sure there's negative out there, but not to me. Okay. How much do you participate on social media, both surfing yourself, posting, interacting with people you don't know? I don't surf myself because I'll find myself. And like I said, it's like reading reviews. You don't want to go looking for trouble. Life is hard enough without looking for trouble. It's like... Look, walking down the street and saying, there's not a mugger on this block. Let me walk on the next block. Maybe I can find a mugger. You, why go looking for a mugger? So, no, I don't do that. But I I am on, I join them all for different reasons. But I'm on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. I was on TikTok for a moment or two, but I don't think I ever posted anything. And I was even, they even made me join LinkedIn because these are tools to sell the book, to, you know, to help. And I had a, and I have a website which hasn't been updated in six months or nine months, whatever, but that was also to help. So I did all that stuff they told me has to be done. Um, I mostly, Facebook, I do do with friends. I belong to, to, I mean, I have friends and we follow each other and we write about our dog. You know, I belong to a Liam Berger page because I have a Liam Berger. I, I, I follow other friends and stuff like that. On Instagram, I mostly follow friends, but I mostly post stuff about my shows coming up. It's advertising. It's, it's sharing dates and stuff like that. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. 
You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash stereo right now. NetSuite.com slash stereo. NetSuite.com slash stereo. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com Okay, you're a gay icon. Many people look up to you. If someone you does it, how reachable are you by the hoi polloi? People who are not either household names themselves you haven't met. Someone posts a response to something you write. Is the public too dangerous or are you open? I'm pretty open. Um, it depends on how it would get to me. I mean, uh, mostly when people post something to me on Facebook or on Instagram or one of those things, they're, they're usually nice. I will hear about, there's a controversy. Oh, kinky boots. Kinky boots. Um, I, I just had, I just had a, um, I did a thing for page six. Well, kinky boots has been brought back off Broadway which I absolutely love because the theater is smaller. So the audience is closer. I come from off Broadway, you know, I come from that world. So it's a smaller theater. There's no balcony in your way. There's no bounce off a balcony for sound. The sound in that place is gorgeous. Even Cindy Lauper, who I get so scared to let her in the theater because she hates how it's, how her songs sound. Even she's happy with the sound in that theater. And like I said, you can see from every seat because there's no balcony, there's no... So I'm really happy with the show off-Broadway. But I did an interview um, where I said that if they make the movie, they were asking me who I would put in the movie. I said, well, when I wrote the show 10 years ago, it would have been different people. These are young people. But right now, I would put Harry Styles and uh, Bruno Mars pick two names out of nowhere. Well, that exploded. I mean, it has made headlines <laughs> across the universe. But what's really funny to me is that some of the argument is Harvey Firestein casting heterosexual men to play gay roles. They're not gay. Neither one is gay. Charlie is heterosexual and the drag queen is a heterosexual cross-dresser. He's very clear. The whole second act opens with a big number called What a Woman Wants, about I am what a woman wants. Uh, and they were just like tearing me apart that I'd want a heterosexual in that role. So that stuff cracks me up. Uh, and then, oh, uh, uh, and then, you know, and so there were a bunch of comments like that. And then it said, well, in Harvey Firestein's opinion... He's heterosexual. Well, whose opinion should it be? I wrote it. In fact, what those idiots don't know, I'll tell you the truth. What those people don't know is that that character, which comes from the movie, the English movie that I adapted to make the musical, 
he took that the writer of the movie took that character from a novel about Ma that made a movie you might remember starring Simone Signore called Madame Rosa. Yeah, sure. Remember Madame Rosa. She yeah. was an ex prostitute. She'd been in 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 Auschwitz. Uh, now she took care of other people's children. Well, her next door neighbor is a transvestite. Well, actually, a transsexual waiting to have an operation, an ex-boxer whose father made him be a boxer so he would toughen him up. The whole character was taken from that novel and put in Kinky Boots, and then I did an adaptation of that character from my Kinky Boots. So these people who are telling me I'm wrong don't even know where this came from. But th that's what I like about stupidity. There's no end to stupidity. If you don't stop and ask a question, you're going to stay stupid the rest of your life. And... <laughs> And the biggest, the biggest enemy of art in, in every way is prejudice. I say in the book, I think it's in the book, um, if you go into a gallery thinking you know what a Picasso looks like, I guarantee you will never see a Picasso. If, you, if you're going to go looking for what is familiar to you as a Picasso, you'll never see what else he painted in that picture. You'll never see what else he did. And that's the truth about any art. If you walk in thinking you know what it should be, you'll never see what it is. And that's my problem with critics. Critics think they have to be the smartest person in the room. They go to see a show, they come in with the history of the songwriter, of the book writer, of the subject matter, of the this, the that. They know every Broadway show that was ever done, and they come in with all of this knowledge to tell you where you fit in. But they've walked in with so much prejudice. The only thing they haven't come in with is the ticket they paid for, which <laughs> makes a difference, which makes a difference. They also have not come to have a good night out. They've come to work. It's not the same experience as an audience. Not the same experience as an audience that's come to have an experience and love what they're seeing. They don't buy a ticket to not like it. Some critics do. There's a very famous New York critic whose name I will not mention. You know if you're going to get a good review or a bad review when he comes into the theater. If he brings his beard with him, you're going to get a bad review. If he brings his young nephew with him, you're going to get a good review. I, listen, I tell you, you know, it just, you know, I talk about concerts, your brother and my and me are in that business. I don't want to hear a review from someone who's not a fan of the act. The people who pay, what was their experience? People who wanted to like right. it. The people who wanted to be there or the person who's never been there before. And it's having that first experience. Right. I, mean, I know thanks to radio and recordings and all that, that doesn't happen all that much. We usually buy a ticket because we know who the person is. I was watching last night. I loved it on the news. Last night was the opening of the, Metro, of the season at the Metropolitan Opera. So they broadcasted in Times Square on the giant screens, and they put out 2,000 chairs, and 2,000 people sat many of whom had never seen an opera before, and watched Medea of all operas to watch. Medea killing her kids off. Um, and they just, one woman said, I always nod out in the theater. I didn't nod out. 
<laughs> I sat through the whole thing and loved every minute of it. So, you know, being exposed to something like that for the first time is so wonderful. Now think of that in terms of the critic, who's walking in, having heard Collis's Medea and having heard Kutrubish's Medea and, you know, and 50 recordings of Medea and seen 48 productions of Medea and this one's direction of it and that one's... And they're walking in with all of this prejudice of what they think Medea should be. Who would you rather hear from? That woman who said, I've never seen nothing like this before in my life. Or this guy who's going to tell you how she didn't hit that E the way she should have hit the E on this recording from 1946. <laughs> the E was hit much better. Okay. Uh, I see you on screen in your office, highly designed, uh, full highly of... Heavily, highly designed. It's not, oh, it's not at all. Well, wait, 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 okay. wait, wait. Let me no tell one, you can, No one can see it anyway. It's got nothing to do with the question I'm asking. Okay. My point is, you appear to be living a nice lifestyle. How do you feel about living alone at this point? Which begs the question of why you're alone. Have you not met the right person? Are you ultimately difficult to have a relationship with? <laughs> what do you think about all that? Well... I built this house. I've been here. I've been here since 1984, but I tore the house down uh, 17 years ago. It was falling apart. It was either put a lot of money into fixing the old house that was here or just tear it down. So I tore it down because, as you can see behind me, I collect folk art and outsider art. I like art. Create. You know, I have a degree in painting. But I, I don't. Well, I do have a collection of of real of of real artists. But I love outsider art. And I love people that have to create. That comes out of a place inside them. That have had an, a, a painting lesson in their life, a carving lesson. I mean, the that lamp you see behind me. You see, there's a woman there with a light bulb. You see yes. her. I have twelve of his lamps. He's a lifetimer in prison. He makes those lamps in prison. They all look exactly alike. They all have blonde hair and blue eyes. And, they, and he makes the clothing out of sleeves from, from T-shirts and stuff like that. And yet he carves a name or paints a name in each one. That one there, that blonde hair, blue eye, is Tina Turner. They all look exactly... His Hillary Clinton looks exactly like Tina Turner. Looks exactly <laughs> like... like um, uh, I mean, they're all... They're all what's, but it's, he's a lifetimer in prison. The um, Above what you can't see, those two... You see those two big frame pieces? Yes, absolutely. Those are wall drawings. Um, you know, in preparation to do silk screens. The one on this side is of Wilhelmina Ross, who is a drag queen who starred in two of my very first plays that I wrote. We we were friends bef before Warhol discovered her and all that. So my collection is stuff like that. So yes, I live in a barn. The, my office is sort of the hayloft. And I designed this place with no walls. Um, I basically designed it for one person. There are guest rooms. On the other, on the other side, there's guest rooms. My but I can close off my bedroom and just have my world, and they can be in the house. I did that because 
I sort of came to a, a realization in my life that I'm just not good at relationships. I love men, and I love playing with men, and I love romance, and I love sex, and I love the physicality. I just not good at relationships. I lose myself completely in a relationship. The very first thing I'm willing to do is give myself up. Nobody wants a cipher, but that's what I turn myself into. I just become like whatever for you. It's stupid. It's bad. It doesn't work. Um, and so I stopped doing it. I stopped doing it. I had, I, you know, the book, certainly numerous um, mess of my relationships, and I do mean mess. Um, and then there's a lot more. I was actually, I was actually, my, my editor said to me, so what about the next book? What is that going to be? And I said, well, I could write a book about all the boyfriends I didn't talk about. I said, I even have a title for it. Bottomless. <laughs> okay okay you have so much self-knowledge have you been in therapy no but let me say this any gay person has been through therapy when you're a child you're you mostly brought into a family most children lucky children are brought into a family as you learn language and relationships and all that, you look and see where you belong. Oh, this is what a daddy does. This is what a mommy does. This is what a brother does. This is, And you find yourself in that. A gay child goes through that process and goes, I don't feel that way. I don't feel like that boy's feeling or a, a young lesbian says, I don't feel like that girl is feeling I have very different so they go back and they do the math all over again and they do and they study themselves and they go okay I fit here I fit here I fit here I don't fit there so that's called the act of coming out coming out this coming out in public but this is coming out to yourself every gay child and I would add transgender and questioning has been through self-analysis. They have to, because they've got to figure out what the hell they are in this world and how they fit in. So most gay kids, transgender kids, whatever, have so much more self-knowledge than any heterosexual will have with 20, you know, than Woody Allen have after 140 years of therapy, because we've gone that deep in ourselves. What is it that's making me attracted to that person? What do I want? There's so much going on there. So you ask, where do you get your self-knowledge? I think I have the same self-knowledge that many other gay people do. Okay, and uh, but you have so much self-knowledge about relationships, how you lose yourself with the other person. If, uh, But I would think the desire does not evaporate. So theoretically, if someone or through some process could help you in a relationship not to lose yourself, is it that you're 70 years old and you say, I don't want to change or you don't believe that could happen? No, no, no. I, I um, this, this, this. I have a gentleman caller. <laughs> I 
<laughs> Don't feel bad for Blanche Dubois. I have a gentleman caller. Um, I, I don't. I don't live uh, uh, without. I, I'm not a. I'm not a eunuch. Um, so I just don't. I'm just not looking for. At this moment, I have never met the person that I could do that with. That I could consciously couple with. I haven't met my Gwyneth Paltrow. <laughs> no, no, she consciously uncouples, right? She doesn't consciously Right, right, uncouple. right. She consciously uncouples. But, um, yeah. Am I open to it? Yeah. And because age has nothing to do with it. I'll never forget. There was a lovely um, documentary about, about gay life, and there was this older couple that met in their late 70s, and they sort of looked at each other and said, should we see what this is like at our age? You know, we had all this sex in our 20s and 30s, and then the world sort of dropped us. Should we see? And they did, and they were together until they died. Um, yeah, I'm, I, am, I am a believer. You know, I have friends that, that met. I mean, I, I don't know how Armistead Maupin, I don't know how old he was when he met Chris, but, but they're uh, such a happy, wonderful couple. Um, yeah, I believe it can happen. It's just, do I need it? And the truth is, I mostly would rather hang out with my friends. You know, okay, but, boys, but boys are different than, than, boys is so different because, you know, we, we, we like, it's, it's like exciting, it's exciting, it's exciting. We orgasm and then we want pizza. It's boys. Okay, let's go back to the point you mentioned earlier about uh, the end of the book and you're connecting with your brother, which really has to do with your mother and how she viewed the fact that you were gay. And it's quite heavy. So if you could relate a little bit of that to my audience and how it ultimately left you. Have you accepted? Are you still scarred? Tell us. I think... What your parents say to you, I think Sondheim was so right when he wrote in, in Into the Woods, children will listen. You know, what your parents say to you and how you grow up and the stuff that's said to you, whether you're conscious of it or not, stays with you and imprints on you so heavily that all the therapy in the world can't actually erase it. I had a friend, Ronald Tavell, who created the Theater of the Ridiculous. I, um, he was uh, agoraphobic. And so I used to have to take him to therapy. I used to have to pick him up at his apartment and take him uptown because you couldn't go uptown on his own. And I would sit outside in the, in the lobby, but I could hear when they got loud. And, and what I, Ronald was in his 60s at the time, and, and I'm sitting there reading a magazine or whatever, and I hear the therapist scream out, You're 63 fucking years old! When are you going to stop blaming your mother? <laughs> you know... It's true. It sticks with you. It's important. It's very important. But you got to also let it go. My mother may have had that bad moment. And maybe that bad moment was a lot longer because obviously it was going on in her mind, whatever was going on. But my mother went on to deliver meals for, for um, God's Love We Deliver you know, to AIDS patients for years. Here's a woman in her 70s and 80s 
driving around Sheepshead Bay with her friends, delivering meals to gay people. Uh, Shut-ins. My mother, uh, she she spoke at, at, she didn't like speaking at groups because she said, what do I know? I'm no expert. But she spoke to parents all the time. People would write to her. And she would and she would speak to them. She supported causes left and right. You know, she had her Jewish causes, and she and then she had her gay causes. So was she still my mother who would make me crazy? I'll tell you a story that's not in the book that'll show you. It has nothing to do with sexuality. It has just to do with with mothers and sons. So. Lacage Fall is about to open a, a, a revival of Lacage at the at the Marquee Theater. Right across the street, the Minskoff Theater, I'm about to open in Fiddler on the Roof. So I'm rehearsing eight hours a day, killing myself, learning those dances, the songs and all that. Across the street, they're rehearsing Lacage Fall. I'm Lacajavol's opening, let's say, on Saturday night, and I'm going to open the ne- the next Monday in Finland. So I rehearse all day. I get a room at the at the 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 Marquis Hotel. There's a hotel up above the theater, um, so I can change my clothes. My family and friends are all waiting for me up in the thing. So I come across. I'm like dying. I've been dancing all day. I'm dying. I jump in the shower. I pull on my tuxedo. I say, "Okay, let's go." And as we're walking out the hotel door, my friend Patty says to me, you must be exhausted. You work so hard. My mother, under her breath, goes, I should work so hard. (laughs) That is classic Jewish mother. Believe me, I understand. I turned around, finger in her face, and said, Jacqueline, you can go home right now. You don't have to go downstairs and take a bow as my mother. You don't have to sit through this show of mine. You can just go home right now. What I say? So that's mothers and sons. It had nothing to do with sexuality or anything else. I should work so hard. Okay. Uh, Pivoting just a little bit, both you and your brother grew up in the city Ron's office was in the city. You lived in the city. Yet you both primarily live in the country now. What's that about? Well, he needed to because he had his two sons. And they made a choice um, to of uh, what schools they wanted the kids to go to. Because you can, you know, I mean, these private schools in the city cost a fortune. And both kids... Both of his sons went to lovely private schools when they were little, but as they got older, they needed better schools. So, uh, um, and I think, I I think they made that choice for that reason because, because my sister-in-law is a lawyer and she still works in the city. To this day, she still um, uh, commutes into the city. Uh, but so they made that choice. I was looking. I was. I was living uh, in the basement of Harvey Tavell's brownstone, and then I. And then I. Uh, uh, I moved into a a, a, um, a condo. He needed to move his mother into the basement, so I found a, a condo and I moved into this condo. But I was looking for a place in Manhattan, and 
the places were so expensive in Manhattan. Brooklyn used to be cheap. Can you believe Brooklyn used to be cheap? It certainly ain't cheap now. My I just looked at my apartment, my old apartment, which I think I sold for $200,000, is worth it like a million and a half now. Oy. Anyway, I'm looking in the city, and there was I, there was one building that I really loved. It was a little standalone building in, in Greenwich Mews. You know, one of those little streets in Greenwich Village. But it, really, it literally was one room on four stories. There was, on the first story was like a living room. The second story was the kitchen and the bathroom. The next story was, was the bedroom. And then the top was like the office. And that, that was a million dollars. And a friend said, really? Why don't you just stay in your apartment in Brooklyn, take that money, nowhere near that money, and go buy a country house. I said, what am I going to, I'm a guy from Brooklyn, what am I going to do with a country house? And she said, because you love swimming, you love the air, you know, just go and see what that's like. Because I did used to come up to this town I live in. I live in a small fictional town in Connecticut. And I used to come up to this town because uh, I had friends who lived here. And um, they had a pool, you know, and I, I love swimming. I love being out in the country. I mean, a lot of our childhood was spent in the Catskills because that's where my father was from. So I guess it was already in the blood. So I got this weekend place and fell in love and spent less and less time in the city. And also, when you have animals, it makes it harder to move back and forth. You know, it's like I have two dogs and two cats. So I fill the car with the two carrying cases for the cats. And I put the dogs in the car. And then I drive into the city, park in a garage, take out the dogs, take out the cats, take them up to the apartment, put out the water, put out the food, change the litter box, take the dogs down for a walk, bring the dogs back up. Then you are first free to go out. You went out came back to the apartment, got the dogs, got the cats, back downstairs into the car and drive home. What kind of, you know, it was just silly. So that's how I ended up spending more time here. Okay, there's a pulse in the city, and you certainly drew on that pulse both for daily activities and inspiration. Do you outgrow that? Is it an age thing, or is no. the city or is the city just different? The uh, city has definitely changed, and maybe it's cha and maybe it has changed because of age or whatever. But the so much of what I loved has changed. Um, you know, this, uh, the gay bars just oh, you know, people are openly gay now. It's it's, <laughs> a, it's a different vibe to all that. Uh, Broadway is when I arrived on Broadway. More than half the theaters were empty. My friend Betty Lee, who had the house up here that that um, that I used to come up to, she was the one who came up with the idea, instead of having all those empty theaters, to put up a sign that said, see a Broadway show just for the fun of it. Half the theaters in New York said, see a Broadway show for the fun of it. They were empty. Broadway was different. The, the shows on Broadway were were four New Yorkers. Think about it. You know, they didn't have a, a Phantom of the Opera and, and Lion King and Aladdin and... Alan Menken lives over there. Don't tell him I said that. <laughs> um, 
they didn't have these tourist kind of shows. It was, we had, on, on my block alone, where I had Torch Song, we had Night Mother, Plenty, um, um, Good, uh, K2, um, Amadeus. We had plays that were for New Yorkers. We had musicals. You know, there was a, a revival of, of um, Pirates of Penzance starring Linda Ronstadt. There was uh, Barnum. Uh, we had, I'm trying to think, we had the history of rock and roll. They were different. It was different. Not that one's better. The, the Broadway goes through its things. It's going through a thing right now. It's, it is different. Can I go into the city and get enough of a flavor from spending a day in the city? Yeah. I go in. I go to the art galleries. I go to an auction. I go to the auction houses. I come in. I see a Broadway show. I eat at my favorite restaurants. I see my, my friends and all that. And then I come home. I do. Okay. Well, you know, I told Barbara Corcoran. You know who Barbara Corcoran is, Yeah. Right? The big, she yes. once said to me, "I was playing a, um, I was playing a, a real estate agent, and she was my uh, coach." And she said, "Harvey, how could you live in Connecticut like that? What's wrong with you? Come back to the city. I'll find you an apartment." I said, "Barbara, here's the difference. I live in the city. I have my fun with my friends and all that. I go up to my apartment." I get up there, I unlock the 12 locks, I go inside, I close the 12 locks. The city is right outside my door. It's right outside my window, it's right outside my door. I am always aware that I'm locked in my box and the city's right outside. I come home to Connecticut. I get out of my car, I walk straight through the house and throw myself in the pool, you know, under the stars, float around in the pool for a while, come out, walk around, do, I don't lock the door, now I do, but back in those days you didn't. Um, I never feel that something is outside my door waiting to come in. I'm in a peaceful place. It's a big difference. How does it affect inspiration creatively? That you never know. You know, if you if you don't meet John Doe, you're not going to write about John Doe. So I wouldn't know. I mean, since I've been living here, I've written, I don't know how many things I've written. So many. Um, it's probably easier to write up here because this office is very comfortable and uh, you don't have that hocking at you from outside. You don't have that fever coming at you. I can concentrate. I don't know. You know, do you have to live to write? Yeah, but I live. Um, okay. You are a very charismatic personality. You tell a good story. You take up a lot of space. Were you that way from a very young age? Or is this something that you developed, grew into? When I was a kid, I always had a friend 
that was more powerful than me. I was always the second banana. I was always the best friend. Like my friend Michael was very charismatic and very handsome and could get any guy he wanted and all that. And there was me. And I had several of those relationships. And I liked being second banana. Um, I didn't feel ever that I wanted to be out there. It wasn't until the until I got into the theater and I got that taste of doing stuff. And I guess I, what I, the way I described it in the book was what Tom O'Horgan said to me. When, <laughs> Tom O'Horgan, who directed Hair, and I said, Tom, I. I've run out of unemployment. I have no work. You're doing a new show at the public theater. Please give me a role in the show. And he said, there's nothing in the show for you. I said, put me in the chorus. I just need a job. And he said, Harvey, if I put you in the chorus, I have no chorus. And that's when I started realizing there was something else going on with me that I didn't, wasn't really in control of. What happens between you and the audience the real magic is not something you do. It's, it just happens. It happens because of who you are or your personality or whatever that magic is that you can't really put your finger on. You know, uh, I can't tell you why audiences love me any more than I can tell you. You know, some other mystery. I don't know. I don't think I'm a great actor. I don't think, obviously, not a great singer, dancer, any of that stuff. But there's something that people like about seeing me. So it's nice. I don't mind. <laughs> I don't mind at all. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other. As Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. Accessed from anywhere. 
You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash stereo right now. NetSuite.com slash stereo. NetSuite.com slash stereo. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com Forgetting about the critics and the people we referenced earlier who might say negative things, you were very successful. Do you find any insider resentment of your success? There's that line in the book that I think, I forget who said it. I think it, it was... Well, anyway, uh, and it's uh, he's uh, and it wasn't an original line of his that show business is the only business where it's not enough that you succeed; all of your friends must fail. Right. Um, I don't think that we in the theater are the only ones who feel that way, and I do certainly understand that there are people who feel that way. The older I get, <laughs> the less I feel that I'm in somehow in competition. I hate that we have award shows and stuff like that. I loathe it. Um, now, what somebody could say to me is, that's fine, you have six Tony Awards sitting in your bathroom. You know, so you can say you, you don't like the Tonys. But I, I don't like what it does to us. It's a tool to sell tickets. That's what it is. Can't we be honest about that um, and not turn it into something else? these popularity contests, but but I guess, you know, I mean, they give out awards in second grade. So I guess that's just built into being human. I don't know. Okay, emotionally, not on paper, do you feel that you're a big success? Emotionally, do I feel like I'm a success? Yeah. Not on paper. I mean, you. someone could say, Harvey, here's the list of your Tony Awards. Here's the list of this. This is your bank account. That defines success. But that might be completely different from what you feel on the inside. Yeah, no, I definitely feel because I don't feel, I mean, there's certain certainly things I didn't do. You know, we all have little moments of, of like being conscious of a project we didn't do that we should have done or you know, that kind of stuff or something I wish I had gotten. Um, but that doesn't have anything to do with success. I, uh, yeah, no, I would have to say yes. Uh, is that terrible? Okay, good. There's nothing wrong with it. I'd have to say that, that I'm really very happy with what I've accomplished. Um, like I said, to sit down and write something uh, um, you, you know, like the, whether it's this book, you know, the, I, I mean, a New York Times bestseller, goddamn. I mean, you know, 
really as long as um, as, as long as you can you believe know, it a lot of people can't accept it even though they've achieved it yeah no i don't think anything came to me so easily that i can't accept it i've worked really hard on most things you know sometimes sometimes something happens that that i just say oh please um there's this movie that's opening friday yeah friday called bros right i don't know if you've seen the ads for billy yes Eichner. yes yeah so i'm in the movie for about 30 seconds literally 30 seconds i hear from everyone who's seen it from every screening they've had including from billy eichner that as soon as the audience hears my voice they begin to applaud they get so excited that i'm there Unfortunately, by the time they stop applauding, my vote <laughs> is over. Because I'm on the screen for 30 seconds. Now, would you say that's sort of embarrassing, you know, because you didn't really do anything to get that kind of applause. But it's also cute and fun. And Well, you did plenty. Well, I guess, I guess in the long run, I did. I sucked okay. a lot of cocks to get that reputation. Bada bing. So uh, you talk in the no, book. I, wait, I, I, I tell you a story. There's a new woman that writes page six. You know page six. The of course. Post. So it's the opening night of Funny Girl. And we're all nervous enough as it is. This is the funny girl that's on now that now stars Leah Michelle and is a huge hit. But you may remember several months ago we opened with Beanie Feldstein. Feldman, Feldstein, whatever. Feldstein, um, yeah. And everybody was a little nervous. So it was opening night of that. And the woman from page six is there. And they say, Harvey, stay away from her. She's so mean. <laughs> she writes very mean things. Just stay away from her. I said, what the fuck do I care? So I go up to her. I said, what do you want? She said, the way the world is going now with people changing language and all that, I don't even know what to call you. Are you a homosexual? Are you a faggot? Are you uh, are you gay? Are you queer? And I said, just call me a cocksucker. That one I prefer. <laughs> <laughs> Can't respond to that particular one. At what point? Some people. Now you talk about being gay, knowing that you're different. You referenced earlier than the conventional person. At what point did you... Wait a second. I can't let you get away with conventional person. I can't let you get away with saying that gays aren't conventional people. You're absolutely right. as boring as any heterosexual. I know some gays. I know some gays I'd like to throw back. You know, you measure them and they're not big enough to keep and you throw them back in the ocean. I know some really conventional gays. You can't get away with that with me. And you are absolutely correct. If I want to give myself an excuse, I was talking while I'm thinking of something else. So let me go directly to what I was thinking. Did you know from a very young age you wanted to, were going to be something? Because in the book, you portray someone who's not who's smart, but is dyslexic. Some of your parents are not absolutely behind you a lot of people who are somewhat ostracized is too strong a term but people who are living in a separate this is where i you know use conventional but and i won't use it again who are separate from the traditional um they say i'm different but 
I'm going to make it. Other people say, well, I'm just going to go on my own course. Who knows what's happening? What did you think? No, I had no. My mother had dropped out of school in seventh grade because she had to help uh, support the family. My father was brought up in a orphanage in the Catskills where at 13 you were an adult. So at 13 he was driving a truck for the bakery. He was delivering bread for the local bakery. My father worked his whole life in a factory as a manager. I was not raised to be uh, <laughs> a hoi I was not raised to be in the upper crust. Um, my brother and I were called the lawyer and the doctor because we were Jews. You know, and Jews always, that's what you, what you, I watched my mother go, you know, I didn't know what the hell I wanted to be. I knew I wanted to be some kind of an artist. I didn't know, I loved the arts. I loved Disney. I wanted to be a Disney cartoonist, but I knew I wasn't good enough to be a Disney cartoonist. I was good enough to copy a Disney cartoon. I could copy the drawing, but could I create? No. But I knew that there must be jobs in the arts for for a technician type person. So that's what I figured I would do. So I went ahead and got my education as an art, in, in the arts. I went to the High School of Art and Design. I went to Pratt, got my degree in painting, etc. My mother, when I went to high school, went back to high school with me so she could finish high school. She then went to college with me. My older brother was already ahead of us. And my father sort of put up, wasn't all that happy with it, but he put up with her going back to school. And she went, and she got as far, she got her master's, she went as far as she could have gotten her doctor, but she didn't want to write that long paper because she was already at the top of the food chain as a New York City school teacher. She said, why do all that work and not get anything for it? Anyway, so I watched people take care of business, which had nothing to do with rising above in in the way that you were asking. I, my brother, as you probably know, because you know him, he got out of school. He was supposed to be the doctor. He found himself in pre-med before he realized he'd been talked into it. Never wanted to be a doctor. He went and formed a rock and roll band. They didn't do very well, but they did okay. Enough so that he realized he could go back to law school because with a law degree, there were lots of things he could do. He could understand contracts and all that and become a manager or whatever and, and have the career that he had. I, on the other hand, just went forward with whatever opportunities came to me. Somebody said, draw posters. I drew posters. Somebody said, work on a set for a show. I worked on the set. Pull the curtain, do the lights, act this little role. What the hell? When Ronald Javel said to me, why don't you write a play? And I said, I can't because I'm dyslexic. I can't spell. And he said to me, there are people who get paid $2 an hour to fix your spelling. You go ahead and write. That was the freedom for me. So it wasn't that I had this uh, ambition 
this growing ambition that I wanted to now be a writer. I'm going to write Broadway plays. No, it was just an opportunity to do something else. To do s and I didn't know what I was doing. And the first couple of plays I wrote, as I say uh, in the book, were imitations of my friends' plays. Um, which is another reason why I don't like critics. Because they came in and reviewed it as if I was trying to do something else. You know, like... Look what he's doing. He's imitating his friends. Such a ripoff. That's all I was trying to... I never wrote before. I never typed before. But anyway, so my life was, in a funny way, accidental. Did I have points where all of a sudden I pushed? Yes, definitely. You have to. You know, you can't just swim with the tide all the time. So I did have moments... But for the most part, it was with open eyes saying, what's this next opportunity? Okay. I mean, I just, how many years ago? Let me just look at the script. 2012, they came to me to write a movie about Mae West for Bette Midler. I went through all the steps and all that. I'm sitting here with this open because yesterday... <laughs> nine years later, ten years later, uh, yesterday I got a call from somebody who had heard about my script from Mae West. They never made it. Um, and said, I hear it's good. Can I see it? Somebody would say, hey, Harvey's out there trying to sell this script for Mae West. No, it's just one of them accidents. Life, Life's really interesting. Life is really interesting if you just live it. You just, you know... I I think the quote in the book is life is only as exciting as the number of times you say yes. Right. I was just going to get there. So you say, say yes, because you never know what will happen. If you say no, nothing's going to happen. Right. Is it really saying yes to everything? Or, now I see you shaking your head. No, you can't so, say yes to everything. So... What does that ultimately mean? Is it when you're on the fence, you say yes? Because there are certain things you're dying to do when you get the offer. And there, so what we're talking about, there are certain things you say, no way. But how does this actually operate in your life where you say, well, you know, I could stay where I am, but I'm going to take a flyer. Um, if you're dying to do something, there's not really a question, then you're going to do it. That's, if you, I have, you know, I've come up with some rules over the years. I'm not sure any of them applied. I, I no longer will do anything for money. Um, money is the wrong reason to say yes. And I only know that because I've said yes to things for money. And they've always turned out disastrously. Um, the ones that are... I, I, the, the things that, that I was talking about and the things that people don't pay attention to are not necessarily somebody calls you up and says you ought to be in Fiddler on the Roof. That's a whole different thing. Somebody calls you up and says you want to go out to dinner. That dinner can change your life more than being in Fiddler on the Roof. You don't know. You don't know what will happen at that dinner unless you go to that dinner. It's the little stuff that we say no to. And we say no because it's uncomfortable, not because it's a big life-changing thing. A big life-changing thing you have to think about. I'm talking about, I'm sitting here talking to you, and 
I get a text message that says, meet me for dinner tonight. Now, I'm going to say no because I've got this script I have to edit and I have this other stuff and I haven't answered email all day and all that. And I'm going to say no. But if I said yes and I went out to that restaurant, I don't know that the guy sitting at the next table wouldn't turn out to be the great love of my life. But I am going to meet him sitting there editing a script at home. So it's the little stuff that is really the important stuff to say yes to. If you stay at home, if you do the comfortable thing, you will be comfortable, which means not living. You, ha you, have, to, you have to live. And live means making uncomfortable choices. It's not the, the big stuff. The big stuff you figure out. Okay, I'm interested. You're saying that you were busy right now. The friend invited you to go to dinner. Forget the person who's sitting at home watching television, whatever. You have things in, that are go, that you're focused on. Just to be clear, you are not going to go. And when should you say, I'm, I got something going on literally just today, the same thing. I'm really busy. And I say, well, you know, maybe at this time I can make a window, but I got so much in the schedule. Should I always be leaning towards yes? Or when can I just say no? When there's other people dependent on you to finish a project, you owe that, you owe that uh, commitment. If it's a project you just want to get finished to get it off your desk, you don't necessarily owe that. You can say to yourself, as I would if somebody called, texted me right now, I would say, you know, it's four o'clock. I'm going to have to stop for dinner sooner or later anyway. I haven't even, I had breakfast. I didn't even have lunch because I've been running. Uh, I came running home to do this with you. But I'm going to have to stop for dinner anyway. And it's going to take me longer to cook it myself than it will to just get in the car and go meet them at the diner. Let me go to the diner. Uh, that's what I mean. Okay. But you is it harder to go to the diner? Yes. Is there what at the diner? I didn't hear it's that. It's harder to go to the diner oh, yes. than to just make a sandwich and sit at my desk. Okay, let's go back. You say you had this Mae West script from almost a, uh, 10 years ago. Right. Are you the type of person right now, there's 15 things, well, there's some things that are relatively dormant, like that movie script, but... Are there a lot of dormant things or a lot of things in the middle? How many projects are you juggling or involved in at once? Um, I keep joking that I'm retired. <laughs> and I cannot stop with the projects. So at the moment, like I said, this the May West thing, this will only take me two days to, to just, I just have to clean it up because um, it's not even written on the same uh, um, version of the script writing program anymore. I have, to, I have to go clean it up, everything. It'll take me two days to do that. No problem. And then that's gone. If they come back to me, it's fine, but it's nothing I'm going to actively pursue. But I've got a, a play that I've always wanted to write that I've started to write. I've got a television show that I've been pitching and I have meetings for, and I've had a few great meetings and that's fine. I've got Kinky Boots Off-Broadway, which I still have to do press for. I've got Funny Girl on Broadway, 
which is going just fine now. Kiki Boots is going to be on the Today Show in two weeks, and they need a lot. You can't say a certain word on television. I have to go rewrite the line. And then there's another line that's, we're seven seconds over, and we can't be seven seconds over, so I have to cut seven seconds out. So there's always stuff like that that has to be done. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, and I, and I am offered a lot of work that I just say no to. Because there's a lot of stupid ideas out there. A lot of really bad ideas out there. And the other thing that, that I say no to is when somebody writes to me and says, I've always wanted to tell my story and you're the one to do it. Oh, see, look at you nodding your head. Your head I hear is that all the time. And what do you say to them? I say two things. I say, well, if I was going to write anybody's story, take that time, I would write my own. And I would say, I just don't have the time. Sounds like a great idea. I just don't have the time. Yeah, I, I, maybe I'm a little kinder than you. <laughs> I, what I say to them is, if someone's going to tell your story, it should be you. But they I always don't know your story. Right. But they always say, no, 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 you're such a better I mean, writer. Matter. That's that's what I say. Somebody's going to tell you a story. It should be you. You have a great idea for a play. Go ahead and write it. You have a great idea for a musical. Gay Gazinta hate. I I have more than enough ideas of my own, and you know, which doesn't mean that a, a bad a good idea could come. I wouldn't have written Kinky Boots unless I was guilty, because I had already turned down two or three other shows offered to me by the same people, and I said if I turned them down again. And and the produce the main producer had produced my show Catered Affair, which she lost everything on it. It bombed. So I owed her and I owed the director, choreographer. So I did Kinky Boots, which turned out to be a wonderful experience. But it took me five or six years to write that show. To get that score well, first of all to find the right composer, which turned out to be Cindy. Lauper, and then to get the fucking score out of that woman <laughs> and to keep the producers from firing her on a daily basis. They wanted to fire her every single day. Um, you know, so it was hard work, but okay. Work. Do you have that holy gray, grail personal project that you just need to get done before you leave this mortal coil? Oh, I would have done it already. I'd do it all the time. I mean, like, like, I really want to write this play. Will the world be fine without this play? Yeah. Will I be fine without this play? Yeah. I'm not a believer in life after death. I've been dead. You know, when I had my, my heart surgery, I, I've, I've been dead. There's no life after death. <laughs> so I don't worry about what what I'm gonna leave behind, or what somebody's gonna think of me, or or whatever. It's, it's such silliness. Uh, Other uh, uh, projects I wish there's there's things I wish I had done uh, that I didn't do. Yeah, yeah, but 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 none of them are painful, cause I do enough of what I want to do, so none of it's painful. They just did the movie of of Little Mermaid. Would I have loved to have played Ursula? The, the evil witch, I would have loved it. 
but Rob wanted Melissa McCarthy. I happen to be a huge fan of Melissa McCarthy. So while I curse her, I will also applaud her. Because <laughs> I'm sure she's going to do a fabulous job in the role. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. Access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash stereo right now. NetSuite.com slash stereo. NetSuite.com slash stereo. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com Okay, your father died surprisingly at a very young age. Yeah, How did that affect you on a long-term basis? And did it force you to pay closer attention to your health? You ultimately had heart problems. Were you lucky it was caught or would you been paying attention? Well, my heart thing, as I tell the story in the book, is such a joke because Two days before I went to the doctor, before my annual physical, I did a drag show for Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS. And I had this huge fur coat and all this stuff. I had these bags that must have weighed 60, 70 pounds. And I dragged them up three flights of stairs to the dressing room, did the show, you know, running up and down stairs and all that. I then go to the doctor and he said, your heart's about to fail, the you know, the valve. Um, don't lift anything over five pounds and don't run up and down stairs. I said, you don't understand. I said, well, don't do that again. But do, 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 don't, don't do that. Okay. Um, 
some some mortality came to me in such a strange way. And then I have this brother who immediately took charge, as he's wont to do, and 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 because he was pre-med in in college, he had a, a, a doctor friend who was able to hook me up with the number one uh, cardiologist in New York. And so before I knew it, I was being operated. It wasn't even like a choice. Um, so did I ever stop to think that my father died of a heart attack? Yeah, And I'm not going to say that life isn't precious. Life is precious. But do I think I'm going to be cheated out of something if I died this evening? No. I wouldn't want them to find me naked. But no, I wouldn't feel like I was cheated. I've had this incredible life. Um, if it ends tonight, vevest. If it ends 30 years from now, well, not really. I have a, <laughs> I have a, 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 a pact with a friend of mine that when things get too hard, we take each other up to the roof and look at the view. <laughs> hey, look yeah, at people that. People couldn't see the, uh, the push there on screen. Exactly. Just right off the roof. But, um... Yeah, but we don't live in Russia. We don't have Putin as our dear friend to help push us off the roof. Uh, but yeah, you know, my philosophy of life, I guess, is, is a little different than other people's, and partly because I have my beliefs, and, and partly because I, I've had this incredible... I mean, what the fucking ride I've had already. Do I have more fun stuff to do? Absolutely. Every day I have more fun stuff to do. But I enjoy... You're talking about somebody who enjoys being at home alone with my dog as much as I do going to a Broadway theater. I love them both, but I love them both. And I get something out of both. I love seeing my friends in the city, and I love seeing my friends up here, which is a whole different crowd of people. Um, and they sort of don't mix. Uh, my lives don't mix. Or sitting, sitting at my sewing machine and making a quilt or sitting at this computer writing a play. Okay, to what degree does Harvey Firestein both open doors and get what he wants or do you have, because projects can be so expensive, do you always have to sell? <sighs> projects are very expensive and you always have to sell even if you want to do it in a tiny theater, um, because because it's always it's my my friend Martin Sherman who wrote uh, Bent. You probably know his play. Of Bent. course. And so he wrote a play that I did at the Public Theater um, called Gently Down the Stream. I did it about five years ago, and uh, and we we had to work to find a theater to put it on. We absolutely did, and you have so you have the writer of Bent, and me, and uh, Sean uh, Mathias directed it. He's a very well known English director. We had three very three people that you can trust to put on a good show, and we still had to work really hard to find the right theater. Um, it's just it's just 
just the way it is. I I have uh, projects, all you know, like Bella Bella. I did a reading of it. I must have had around 10, 12 theaters come, and everybody had different opinions on what should be done with it. Um, yeah, you, you're always selling, but that has nothing to do with writing it. I already wrote the show. Then you then you have to sell, and then you go back to being an artist again of producing it. Okay, so when you do go to sell, uh, most of the creative work is already done in terms of, you know, the structure, the bones of what you got? No, your script is done. You you know, and the script is malleable, but theater is a, theater's a, 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 a it's not a single person. Even Even if you're doing a one-person show like Bella Bella, you have the director... You have the designers, lighting, sound, set designer, even costume of what you're going to look like. Um, you have the theater owner and what that space is going to feel like when the audience comes into it. <laughs> Do I, I don't know if I tell the story in the book or not. When we were doing Bella Bella and this guy... I had to go to the bathroom so bad, but he did not want to leave that theater. He didn't want to leave that theater. So he went out the side door and he peed on the wall. <laughs> what he didn't know was we could hear it in the theater. He peed on the wall of the theater and there were very thin walls. And so the entire audience and the play takes place in a bathroom. So I was grateful that he didn't come up on stage and pee in the toilet bowl on stage. But the guy, I mean, so even the theater can fit into what the whole evening is like. Uh, but yes, theater is definitely, it's not, it's not a book. Even the book, I mean, Chip Reed did a gorgeous job uh, designing this book, you know, and, and the cover is, is absolutely beautiful. Uh, I, I mean, it took us weeks just choosing the photographs because my editor didn't want it to look like a showbiz book. You know, I would have put a couple of hundred photographs in there, but he didn't want it to look like a showbiz book. He wanted it to look like a memoir. So you don't do anything alone. There's no such thing. I mean, while you and I are sitting here talking, you have Margaret sitting in the other room, you know, bored out of her mind, saying, I got to fix this shit when this is over nobody nobody's alone that's well put you've made your name on broadway but you've also had great success in films give me your take hollywood vis-a-vis -vis broadway and you wish you were in more films which tend to have a permanence that broadway does not what's your take um i couldn't care less about movies I really couldn't. I, I've been in a few, not many. Uh, I've enjoyed myself sometimes. Most of the time I'm bored. Because movies, you know, they, they drag you to the set. You rehearse the scene. Then you go back to your trailer. And you sit in your trailer for several hours while they light it or whatever. And they put you in the costume or whatever. They drag you back to the set. They fix it again. You do it once or twice or 20 or 30 times, doesn't even matter. You're out there for a couple of minutes, back to your trailer. It's, it's not, 
there are people that know how to do that as an art. I am not among them. I find it incredibly boring. Theater, you still rehearse like you do in movies, but you rehearse the whole piece. You form the whole piece, and then you go out and you perform it in front of an audience, and you have the whole control. You are the control. You got you. The act is telling the audience what to look at, what um, what to feel, and all. It's just much more control in, in that. Uh, um, I love movies. I love going to the movies. I love watching movies. I'm, I could care less about being in them. I loved doing certain movies, but if you knew what those circumstances really were like, they're a joke. I mean, Mrs. Doubtfire. You know, which everybody recognized me from. I was there for two days. There was two days that I got a lifetime relationship out of it is the important thing to me. I couldn't care less about the movie. My relationship with Robin meant everything to me. Um, what's another one? Independence Day. I was there one day. I did the scenes with, you know, in my in my offices or whatever, and then they took me outside, put me in a car in an alley, said, we're going to turn on a yellow light. When the yellow light goes on, that means the building is falling on you. Make a face. I made a face. I went home. <laughs> meant nothing to me. You know, very glad that the movie made a couple hundred million dollars, but it's nothing I'm ever going to care about. Well, do you get, at this point, do you get offers? And if you get offers, do you turn them down? Or is that something that was infrequent to begin with? Um, It's infrequent to begin with. Uh, I get offers when they don't know what they want. So they say, get Harvey, he'll fill it in. (laughs) We didn't, the writer didn't write anything. Get Harvey, he'll fill it in. Uh, So uh, why bother? Um, I did the movie Bros., because Billy asked me to do it as a favor. He wanted an all-gay cast and wanted me to be part of that, and that's why I did it. Um, like I said, I'm in it for 30 seconds, so what's the big deal? But I don't I don't get offered great movie roles. I mean, I'm, my feeling might be different if I did. You know, maybe I would like movies if, if I was offered a role that was more than, you know, thankless. Okay. You've been in movies... You're physically recognizable. Certainly in New York, there's Broadway, there's all kinds of things you're recognizable. And you also have this voice. Can you go anywhere unrecognized? And to what yes. degree is that and to what degree is that a burden when you are recognized? No. I can I mean that's another reason for living up here. Is I can go all sorts of places up here and nobody knows who I am. It's lovely. Wow. Um not you know, I can't. I, I well, I can walk around New York City, in most most neighborhoods, and nobody'll know who I am. I, I you know I can't walk around Broadway. I mean, who was it? I think it was I think it was um, uh, um, when they were doing me for sixty minutes, which never aired. Um, the the reporter called me the mayor of Broadway because we walking down the street. We couldn't he could we couldn't walk and do the interview at the same time because everybody kept coming up to me. And, and interrupting us. Um, but that's just lovely. 
You know, that's lovely. But that I can also escape it is lovely. I, you know, I have friends like a Robin Williams or a Henry Winkler or, you know, that to spend time with somebody like that who can't go anywhere, do anything without causing a crowd. I don't think I could live like that. How about the opposite? By being Harvey Firestein, you get to meet people that you never thought you'd be able to meet. You had a couple of those experiences? Oh, all the time. All the time. And I usually embarrass myself. Did you, have you watched, have you watched the, um, what is it called? The Offer? That, the new series about. No, no, I haven't. I know what you're talking about. Right. Well, there's a scene with Mario Puzo. He takes Mario Puzo. It, Bob Evans takes Mario Puzo into a restaurant. I forget what restaurant it is. And Frank Sinatra's sitting there. And he tells him to not go over to the but he goes over to the table to meet Frank Sinatra and Frank Sinatra screams and yells at him and calls him all kinds of horrible names and all that that's that's me I you know I, the, the first time I first time I was seated with Meryl Streep I think I tortured that poor woman I, because I had just written a catered affair and I just thought if she would only do it if I could just get her to star in catered affair and I tortured them she didn't have a chance so so, so then the next celebrity I sit next to is um what's his name uh Tom uh, Tom not Tom Cruise Tom Hanks and so I decide leave him alone do not torture Tom Hanks. You're sitting in a table with Tom Hanks. Leave him alone. Don't say anything to him. And I heard later, you know, Harvey didn't say a word to me. It was like, <laughs> what's wrong with him? It's like I'm sitting there going, hello. And Harvey's like ignoring me. So I, I'm very stupid. Okay, so you're that. saying if you're in a public space and you see a celebrity, you will get up and talk to that celebrity. Sometimes I will, and sometimes I won't. It doesn't. Whatever the choice I make, it's the wrong one. But that, there's that other thing about celebrities, though, that I really love. My favorite thing about celebrities is that they all know each other because we <laughs> all belong to the same club, you know. So um, the other night, Leah Michelle opened in Funny Girl, and it, the place was packed with celebrities. And so there was celebrities saying hello this way, that way, and all that, and and um. Oh, I'm so embarrassed to tell the story, but it's the truth. Drew Barrymore comes up to me and, oh, Harvey, how have you been? And I'm thinking to myself, oh, we belong to this club together. Asshole that I am. We made a movie together. We, we, we spent weeks together on a movie. Um, we had a whole relationship with each other. I just haven't seen her in years, but, you know, but that's me. Okay, another thing that's very interesting in the book, you take down Bill Maher. Now, Bill Maher is known for being very self-satisfied, and a lot of people have been wanting to take him down. The experience you mentioned is very clear-cut in terms of what was said and what was done, but to what degree did you say, I want to put this in the book and I want to mention him specifically? Um... I think you're right. I don't like the man. Um, I find him just oh, disgusting. And yet, in a funny way, you almost have to check in with him every now and then 
to see what he's saying because he does have a certain voice and people do listen to him and I want to hear what he's saying, even though I always think he's so fucking wrong. He's so. St- uh, this week he talked about DeSantis sending the the um, immigrants to. Oh yeah, uh, and he thought it was great. Right. Oh. He's been so wrong. Oh, yeah. They're complaining. Look at that beautiful beach. Look at that beautiful town. He has no idea what it is to be a human being. He hasn't been a human being in so long. All he does is complain about cancel culture because he can't tell the jokes he wants to tell. He has no feelings for anybody else. He couldn't care less what anybody else feels like. He just wants to tell the jokes. But that's the way it is with an addict. I mean, the man, I don't think that man has gone two days in his life without smoking marijuana. I mean, you're a drug addict. Admit you're a drug addict, and then we can talk. If you can't go a day without smoking, and that's his big issue, is, oh, I finally have my marijuana. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, there really is more to life than, than checking out. You could try enjoying life. And then his attack on fat people, don't even start me. But anyway, I decided to tell that story more in a funny way for Lynn, for Lynn Redgrave, who I adored. And she was so hurt by what he did that day. She actually went back and did his show again and never mentioned it to him. She was a much bigger person than I am. But I... I wanted to tell that story for Lynn and be, and for and for women, period, because it's still true to this day. He still doesn't have women on his show. It's still usually three men or two men and a woman, or but it's never three women, because he has nothing to say to them. I fuck them, I smoke dope off them, and life goes on. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. Access from anywhere. 
You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash stereo right now. NetSuite.com slash stereo. NetSuite.com slash stereo. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com. Well, speaking of addicts, you talk about your own experience with substance abuse and 12-step. To what degree, well, there are two sides. What degree were you, you know, hooked? And then how hard was it to get off? But did it affect the work or really it was separate from the work? Yes. Does addiction affect your work? Absolutely. I did not work. I did not really write in that whole, uh, there was a long slide of alcohol. Alcoholism is not something that starts one day and, well, it did end one day for me. I just hit a bottom, but I hit the bottom sitting in my garage with the car running. Not really a choice there. You know, it's like, okay, you, and I already had Alan on behind me, but so I'm sitting in a garage or I wake up the next morning because I was too stupid to, to figure out how to kill yourself. Um, and, I, and I said, okay, the, the, what they predict in Al-Anon, what they predict in AA has happened. My disease wanted to get me into a room alone and kill me. It just did. It's time to stop taking charge and let somebody else take charge. 12-step programs will tell you God takes charge. God, to me, is group of drunks. G-O-D, group of drunks. You all tell me what to do, and I will do it. And that's what I did. So I never looked back. I had that last drink and have never wanted a drink again, have never touched a drink again. I have no desire. And it's 20, it's going on 28 years. Um, And I gave up smoking soon after that. And then eventually caffeine also. So does it affect your work? Yes, because working, I didn't work on alcohol. You, 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 you think you're writing something great. You know, you're drunk and you're writing something great. Oh, this is fabulous. That's the funniest thing I ever wrote. Oh my God, that's hysterical. And you look at it the next day and go, what is this shit? If you can even read it, because you've scrawled it across a piece of paper when you were drunk, and you know, and you, you don't even know it. Yeah, no, I, it was it was not good for work. Um, I did a bunch of acting in those bad years, um, and that wasn't too bad because you there's a lot of drunk actors that get away with being drugged or drunk. There's something about being vulnerable i think that comes out but i also was a secret drunk nobody knew i was drinking i didn't drink once i knew that i drank only once i knew my day was over even if that was noon and i wasn't going to see anybody else that's the other great part about living in the country 
Couldn't do that in the city. Somebody could always ring your doorbell. But living in the country, I could sometimes be done with all my day by noon and drink until the next day. Um, yeah. <laughs> anyway. Okay. To, I don't know what you no, want. Yeah, I got it. <laughs> to what degree does your Jewish upbringing and Jewish sensibility affect your work? Oh, it's everything. It's everything. It says, you know, it's uh, Neil Simon said to me in my dress room at Torch Song. Notice how, how cutely I just dropped that name. Um, but Neil Simon said to me, where did you come from? I said, a couple of blocks from you. Uh, it's, it's, it's there. I, uh, there's all kinds of reasons. And, you know, there are hundreds of books on the subject of, of the, you know, I guess the bottom line for dramatists anyway is put two Jews in a room together and you'll have three opinions, you know, or, or as I say, put two rabbis together and one of them is going to be agnostic because they both can't believe the same thing. If you believe this, I have to believe something else. And that is how we're trained. I mean, I don't know. Did you have that? Did you have uh, religious training? Absolutely. Yeah. So then you know that's how we're trained. Right. Here's the idea. You argue this side. You argue that side. And that's how you learn the Bible. That's, you know, the, the, the Christian Bible, they're lectured. They're lectured to fucking death. Memorize this crap. And you and they translate it. And they, and they, and they, they, they. They add other meanings that have nothing to do with the written word and all that, which I always laugh when I watch those those preachers who turn an innocent phrase into something else. Jews, I, I, I'll never forget when I was sitting doing Kaddish with my father, which I didn't, my brother did most of the days of Kaddish. I only filled in fam. Um, but one day, you know how they take one line from the from the Bible and they discuss it after doing the morning prayers? It was a measurement of one of the pieces of wood to build the ark. And these old men sitting there drinking schnapps at seven in the morning spent an hour arguing what was the meaning behind that measurement. Well, what I always say is Judaism is a questioning religion and Christianity is didactic. Everything's up for grabs. The other thing, you put two Jews in a room, it's not going to be quiet. No, so that's, that's it, also true. Let's, let's just go back to Broadway. So you is Broadway always up and down, or have we really hit a different phase with there being so much money in it, a lot of non-Broadway people, rock stars, et cetera, getting in Broadway? And as you say, there are many fewer traditional plays than there used to be. What do you think about the future of Broadway? I think we just missed a great opportunity to reinvent it all. The COVID close down was such a great opportunity to go back and say, okay, we've gotten a little out of control with ticket prices now. We've gotten a little crazy with the unions Everybody's living very comfortably and it's very nice, but charging $400 a ticket for a 90-minute show is a little nuts. Can we, like, unravel some of this? And we didn't. They didn't even clean the theaters. The theaters were shut down. Maybe they changed the air filters. 
you know, they, but they didn't, you, I would have thought they would have gone in and painted the dressing rooms, but the actors all went back and this stuff was still sitting there exactly where they left it two years ago. So I think we missed a great opportunity there. But you can't ignore it forever. It's going to come, you know, you, you, it's going to bite you on the ass eventually. The truth has to come out and change will happen whether you want change to happen or not. So I still think it's coming. Just like whoever thought Phantom of the Opera would close. But it's closed. Or it's closing. Whether you like it or not, nothing stays the same. It moves on. It moves on. So there will be a new day on Broadway. It it will be, we say in 12-step, we say, I never let, let go of anything without leaving claw marks. Broadway will leave claw marks on all those buildings. But it will change just because it has to. Because it's not it's not it's not a concert. You know, um what's his name? Elton John. They just figured out he's gonna personally, personally take home thirty million dollars from this next tour he's doing. Uh Springsteen, who I adore charging the prices he charged for his Broadway show. You know, absurd. He doesn't need that kind of money to come out of his house. He doesn't need that. Why can't you do a show for... Because you love it. You want, I mean, why... Why does everything have to be about money? And why does... $1,000 a ticket... Because I bought two tickets for my brother to see the show for a birthday present, a thousand, and I was getting, you know, I wasn't getting kicked up to the high right. prices. I was getting from the theater owner, who's one of my best friends. I was getting a decent price, and it was nine hundred and something per ticket, plus the extra charges they put on it. It's not right. Well, let me, let me just ask you, just staying on that point. Without going into Springsteen or any specific shows, not that I'm unwilling to do that, what many people say, Hamilton being the best example, if we don't charge that price, the money goes to the scalpers. Right. That's what, that's what Springsteen just said. Um, he said, why should the money go to the scalpers? Why shouldn't I get that money? Uh I do think they can control that better. I think producers and theater owners would rather have the money in the bank from the scalpers and then turn their backs. But could they turn to a scalper? I don't know that that would be legal or not. And say you could only add this much to the ticket price. I don't know if that's legal or not. Well, there are ways to do it, restrict with paperless. Well, I don't want to. Why yeah. didn't they work on that while, while we were closed down for two years? Why not put I, I could have a that? whole discussion about this. The irony is people don't want it because people want to scalp the tickets themselves. They want to sell it. This has been a big thing in the music business forever. I'm not apologizing for the acts. Right. I'm not apologizing for promoters. But you would think the public would be on the same page. Well, no, because then I won't be able to go to the last minute and pay or no, if I buy tickets, I won't be able to get rid of my tickets. But let's not go down that avenue today because ultimately we're on the same page. It should not cost that amount yeah, of money. I had a friend, I had a friend sit outside the Harry Styles um, theater the other day uh, because she had a connection that was supposed to be able to come through with a ticket if a ticket 
and she stayed there until the curtain went up and the ticket never came through. And because she, she couldn't afford the thousand dollars to see Harry Styles, who she really wanted to see. And it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart. Why shouldn't they? I mean, I went, you know, when I was a kid, I went to Carnegie Hall to see Buffy St. Marie. Okay, it's not Harry Styles. But I went to see Donovan. I saw Bob Dylan. I saw, I saw all my heroes live on the money I could afford. You know, $20 tickets. Broadway, I mean, of course, I'm being silly now. But when I was a little kid, my family and I, four of us, my father, my mother, my brother and I, $2.50 a ticket. We sat in the first row of the balcony. Perfect seats. You could see everything for 10 bucks. 15 cents was the subway. Well, I think so that this, was 60 cents. But the problem is bigger than Broadway. It's about income inequality. I mean, no one had billions back then. Well, there's also, but there's also that, you know, we added the half price booth, which is a wonderful thing. But I was a child seeing Broadway, whether I went into theater or not, my life was changed by seeing just, if I saw nothing but Fiddler on the Roof, my life was changed by seeing a stage full of Jews. Can you imagine the kid who's went to see, whose, kid, whose life is not so good, who went to see Hamilton and had his life changed? Do you know how many lives Hamilton can change? And I know they've got it on Disney+. Plus. It's not the same. It's not the same. It's not. It's not having seen it a number of times with the original cast and subsequent cast. It's different. But what's this bit about you're retired? Oh, I, well, I like to joke that I'm retired. I mean, it would take a lot to get me to do eight shows a week, I'd have to really love the play because it is hard to do eight shows a week. Um, you know, working, I mean, who else works six days a week the way, you know, us theater people do? And eight shows a week is hard, you know. Uh, but but there are things, I mean, I'm opening next week in Guys and Dolls at the Kennedy Center. And how? what's your commitment I'm going to be home every day because we pre-recorded my role. <laughs> okay. They, they offered me the role of Big Julie, which is a fun role. Uh, but I said, uh, uh. <laughs> so he said, if you remember Guys and Dolls, they need a place to have the uh, crap game. And so nicely, nicely calls this guy who runs a underground garage and says, can we have the garage? He says, yeah, you can have the garage. You got to pay me up front. And it's a three-page long scene of saying, you got to pay me up front. You got to pay me up front. And so I record, I pre-recorded it. And uh, so I will be at the Kennedy Center. <laughs> I think they're not even, I don't even think I'm in the program. I think you'll just hear my voice and people will realize it's me. Okay, Harvey, I could literally talk to you for days. You're so easy to talk to. But I think we've come to the end of the feeling we've known for today. Good. <laughs> so I want to thank you, Harvey, for doing this. Uh, you tell a great story. They're also in the book. You can get the audio version. So thanks again for taking the time. 
Thank you for having me. I realize it was also two hours out of your life. Okay, but it's also two hours for many people who don't have the access I have. <laughs> okay, till next time. This is Bob Lefsetz. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hey, hey, it's Malcolm Gladwell, host of Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. An epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is going to be good. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at AmericanExpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply.